2: Double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn and cauldron bubble. These famous lines from Shakespeare's Macbeth elicit popular images of sinister witches over their cauldrons, boiling evil potions. Today on New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network, we're talking with Dr. Paul Moyer, author of Detestable and Wicked Arts, New England and Witchcraft in the Early Modern Atlantic World, which places New England's battle against black magic in a transatlantic perspective. In this accessible and comprehensive study of witch prosecutions in the Puritan colonies, Moyer explores how English colonists understood the crime of witchcraft, why some people ran a greater risk of being accused of occult misdeeds, and how gender intersected with witch hunting. Well, thank you so much for being here, Paul. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thanks for inviting me. One of the things you point to is that there are so many works on the history of witchcraft, witch hunting, and the occult, but detestable and wicked arts really challenges and reframes some of those works' arguments in very important and new ways. So what was the impetus to write this book? What was the origin story?
1: Okay. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this in the preface to the book briefly. I've been teaching about witchcraft for a long time, you know, a couple decades now. And specifically, I teach a, a research seminar for undergraduates on New England witchcraft. And needless to say, I, I assigned the classic text by John Deimos, uh, Carol Carlson, but I was never um, 100% satisfied with that work, um, especially because I didn't think it was necessarily accessible for an undergraduate undergraduate audience that wasn't really familiar with witchcraft. So many, many years ago, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should write <laughs> uh, my book, you know, to kind of meet that need that I saw. So that's sort of like the, the I guess, the, the impetus behind the project was to create a work that would be accessible and useful to students, but also that would, all, you know, speak to scholars, that would contribute something to the field. And I guess on that latter point, I'd also point out that the kind of the, the landmark works on New England witchcraft, uh, a lot of them were written Mm -hmm. in the early 80s. So, you know, they've aged, um, they've aged pretty well, but a lot has happened in the field uh, of witchcraft since the early 80s. So, I also thought it'd be important to uh, write a comprehensive study of witch hunting in New England that reflected that new scholarship. In particular, there's a a lot of uh, valuable and interesting scholarship that's come out about witch hunting in early modern Europe. So I thought it'd be useful to kind of bring the New England scholarship into conversation with that body of scholarship in Europe. So that's sort of another factor behind it.
2: Yeah, I I think that that's interesting when we see that part of the impetus is not only within research, but it's also in teaching, that you were teaching a lot of these courses and you wanted to make something that's accessible, uh, especially to undergraduate students, which detestable and wicked arts definitely is. Um, and, And keeping with that idea, too, you know, we've often seen the New England witchcraft craze as peaking slightly later. Than that in continental Mm -hmm. Europe and England. At least that's what kind of the traditional scholarship said, what you were pointing to. Um, But you make the strong argument that these peaks happen around the same time period, that we need to bring these historiographies in conversation with each other, look at what was actually happening. So why do you think then in this more traditional scholarship that New England, specifically Salem, has been characterized as this outlier?
1: I think it has a lot to do with Salem. Um, Salem kind of dominates the field of New England witchcraft. It's by far the most famous, the most well-known. There's a kind of an independent cottage industry just in writing books on Salem. Mm -hmm. For every book that comes out on witch hunting in New England outside of Salem, there's probably three that come out just on Salem. And since Salem happened late, it happens in 1692, um, I think – that has sort of shaped the way people see the rest of witch hunting in New England. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the kind of the the simplest explanation right there is that in many ways, Salem has become a substitute for witch hunting in New England. And since it was late, then, you know, therefore New England witch hunting is late. And when you get into it, when you actually look beyond Salem, you begin to see that that's that's not the case. Um, In many ways, New England was pretty much in sync with patterns of witch hunting in England, at least for the first three quarters of the 17th century. And that's a major point that I make in my book, is that if you put witch hunting in New England in a transatlantic context, you begin to see that these patterns are in sync with one another. So for example, uh, there's a a massive upsurge of witch hunting in England in the mid 17th century. And it's almost like throwing a a stone into a pond the impact is in England and then the ripples go out from England across the rest of the English Atlantic empire to places like Bermuda and and New England. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the main arguments that I make in my book is that there is this sort of connection between the two and that we need to see witch hunting in New England in the context of witch hunting in the old world. And, And I guess maybe to speak to that a little bit more, traditionally the scholarship on witch hunting in New England has been sort of dominated by what I would describe as a sort of localist perspective. Mm-hmm. That the way to understand witch hunting is to really look at the local social relationships and local social context that promoted those those episodes. And there's a lot to be said for that. Certainly, Certainly witchcraft does generate kind of out of interpersonal relationships and interpersonal conflict. But I guess the, the downside of that is there hasn't been as much attention given to the dynamics of which uh, hunting that existed beyond individual communities. So again, that's where I wanted to come in and sort of uh, explore that. Kind of do the zoom out perspective
2: in that way and putting this into the conversation with with Atlantic history. And I think what you've done there is you've really adopted some of the, I think, real benefits to Atlantic history of looking at this in a very wide Atlantic perspective and seeing those comparisons that are happening and reframing our understanding of what's happening in New England for certain.
1: Absolutely. When when Demos wrote his book Entertaining Satan in the early eighties, when Carol Carlson wrote her book in the early eighties, the whole concept of Atlantic World history didn't even exist yet. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of another context I wanted to bring into this study.
2: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, most of the scholarship was written in the eighties, right when right, right when that concept is starting to form, right. and we really do need to have you know that much. Larger conversation about what is happening in the Atlantic world, in the English Atlantic world. This isn't, like you said, it's not only the local, it's a much larger trend right. that's happening there.
1: And that's true with witchcraft studies in general. Yeah. There's been a lot more, you know, comparative work done. Uh, for example, like you know, how does witch hunting in in uh, Muscovy or Russia compare with Western Europe in the in the 17th century? So things like that. So my, my book's kind of in keeping with that newer trend in witchcraft scholarship.
2: Definitely, I think too. You know, your your book is recasting some of the sensationalism too around uh, Salem in yeah. New England, which I think is very helpful, especially for. Individuals who may be familiar with New England and witchcraft there, but aren't really sure what happened. There's so much sensationalism around that um, that I think that you've recast that very nicely for researchers, scholars, teachers, students, as well as just the general public at large. I imagine that this is a book that the general public would pick up from their interest um, in witchcraft, especially in New England, especially New Englanders right, who grew up with this.
1: Right. And and that's one of the common, you know, whenever I talk to people and I tell them that I'm writing this book, that's sort of one of the first questions they have, you know, why did this happen? And I think, yeah, I think people have very kind of sensationalist notions Mm -hmm. of why this happened. Was it some sort of secret conspiracy, you know? Right. And for better or for worse, I think the, at least in my mind, the answers to why witchcraft happened um, are sort of mundane, Mm -hmm. actually. Uh, I think a lot of it grows out of, of interpersonal conflict. There are, are stresses and strains in these communities. And for various reasons, these stresses and strains end up kind of generating witchcraft fears and, and witch hunting.
2: I you know, in teaching, I, I teach a course on witchcraft and women and family history. And mm-hmm. my students are always waiting for that sort of nefarious answer to why witchcraft right, happened. Right. They they really want it to be, you know, something kind of evil and and wicked in that way. And, you know, when you answer, no, it's, it's a bunch of, of local societal pressures as well as larger pressures happening in the world at that point in time. And sort of explaining the inexplicable, they get a little sad. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. I think especially with the, it was the issue of kind of gender and witch hunting, um, I think in the past and some past scholarship, and I think even in, in kind of uh, the general public today, there's, I guess, some sort of sense that witch hunting must have been some sort of conspiratorial, you know, kind of war on women, that it was a front, mm-hmm. that, you know, witch hunting wasn't really about witch hunting, it's about this other thing that that witch hunting uh, was kind of covering up for. And and certainly, witch hunting did impact women Far more and far more negatively than it impacted men. But again, right. I don't think it's this sort of sensational kind of conspiracy theory right. that necessarily explains that.
2: Well, I want to push you a little bit more on on that particular issue because you you bring this up in chapters four and five. I think throughout your book, the issue of witchcraft and gender is very there. Um, but f- chapters four and five definitely dive into this as as some of the main topics of these chapters. And like you said, anybody could be accused of witchcraft. And you certainly right. show that men or women um, in New England, but the accused was often a woman.
1: Right. And
2: what's the reasoning for this during this period? What led to this gendered action of the accused normally being a woman?
1: Yeah, I guess there's um, a few factors that go into that and, and putting it as briefly as I can, I guess factor number one is that the stereotype of witchcraft was often associated with women, mm. both in popular culture and sort of elite discourse. When you think about it, the archetypal witch is Eve in the Bible. Mm-hmm. She's this woman, she's in cahoots with the devil, and she she tempts Adam and you know, all this bad stuff happens. So, you know, even biblically speaking, there is that stereotype. By the by the time you get to the you know Puritan New England in the 17th century, that stereotype is 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 very well established. So I think that in itself helps to explain the connection between women and witchcraft. There was this um, notion that was a very common notion in early modern Europe, that women were physically, morally, and spiritually weaker than men, Mm -hmm. therefore more vulnerable to Satan's temptations, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of one. You have that issue of of witchcraft stereotypes uh, that connect the crime to women. Number two, and I guess on a more mundane level, um, it just so happens that the sort of things that women did in their day-to-day lives, I think, put them um, in the crosshairs of witch fears more often than men. So, for example, witchcraft is very much associated with illness mm-hmm. and associated with death. Well, you know, who's in charge of health care? Women. Right. Um, who's in charge of, of dressing and preparing the dead for burial? Women. Witchcraft is also very much associated with attacks on children. Well, you know, who's in charge of childcare? Women. So it just so happens that a lot of the societal tensions that set off witch hunting revolved around aspects of life where women were very much present. Right. So I think that's kind of the second factor. It just so happens that women uh, play roles in society. That helped to put them under suspicion. And the, and the third factor, and I think this one is, is most kind of directly related to issues of, of gender and gendered power, is that um, I think women in the early modern period, and certainly in 17th century New England, had sort of less latitude to break the rules mm-hmm. than men did. Mm-hmm. So in 17th century New England, there, there were positive roles for women. Um, you know, uh, women could have status in 17th century New England society, but they had to travel a very narrow path in order to kind of reach that status. And if they strayed from that path, you know, then bad things could happen to them. So for example, witchcraft is associated with aggression and anger. And I think um, men were more able to express those feelings. It was seen as more masculine. Mm -hmm. If women did that, if a woman was perceived as being aggressive or angry, then that could have more negative connotations. So I think the third factor is, is that um, women just didn't have the same sort of latitude to break and bend the rules like men did. And and if women did that enough, then they could you know fall under the shadow of witchcraft suspicions. Now, certainly the same thing could happen to men. Right. If men were bad husbands, if they were bad fathers, Um, that could happen to them too. But again, I think there was uh, maybe a greater degree of tolerance for that sort of dissonance. For example, one guy I love in 17th century New England, um, John Godfrey. He is um, accused of witchcraft three times in his life. He is the most dysfunctional man, Puritan man that you can come across. He never married. He never had roots. He was cantankerous. He was angry. Um, He's accused three times and each each time he's acquitted. So again, I think there's an example of a person who was, in many ways, uh, the essence of the witch, who's kind of allowed to get away with that behavior in maybe a way that a woman would not. So there's there's you know, there ends my my sermon on on why women were accused <laughs> of witchcraft. I,
2: I think that those gendered assumptions are are really important to think about and the ways in which you're right you know, a masculine aggressiveness or a masculine cantankerous attitude would have been more Mm. acceptable than say, you know, the woman who lives on the edge of town and is a bit of an outlier and a bit of a town pariah is not as well accepted as perhaps her male counterpart would be in that or
1: country. even an even an upstanding housewife right. who was well liked in the community i mean that's just something you couldn't get away with yeah
2: and i think that those those gendered assumptions really do play in very largely here right. it does make me think you know in in you know 300 years of time has things changed much in terms of gendered <laughs> assumptions and no no you know i'd have to say there's a bit of patriarchal le- equilibrium there in some ways oh
1: yeah if you look at current politics today mm-hmm. If if a a female political candidate does the same thing that a male political candidate does, the public response to it can be very, very different based on those assumptions of what a woman should be like. I
2: think those kind of touch-off points for students are incredibly important, thinking about these comparisons between gendered assumptions about witchcraft are very similar to gendered assumptions about politics or other women in leadership positions for sure.
1: Yeah, the the gender norms are still there. Obviously, the the consequences of breaking those yes. have changed dramatically, but you know those assumptions are still very much alive. Right. Exactly.
2: Luckily, very few modern women will be accused of being witches, which is good. Um, right. I, I, you know, thinking about your explanation there too, thinking about New England specifically to go maybe taking down the Atlantic perspective and going back to a local perspective that you do touch on a okay. bit in in the book too. You know, this is New England. They're Puritans. Why do right. you think? that Puritanism made such a perfect breeding ground for these witchcraft accusations at the end of the 17th century, or during the 17th century, not just the end.
1: Yeah, I guess um, the first issue I'd bring up is that Puritanism advanced uh, this kind of providential worldview Mm -hmm. in which every event, everything that happened was uh, part of God's providential plan. It had some sort of larger cosmic significance to it. So if a Puritan saw a comet flashing through the sky, that wasn't just a scientific phenomenon. That was an event that could have some sort of deeper spiritual meaning. And if you have a group of people who kind of live in this sort of uh, world in which ordinary everyday things are sort of supercharged with potential supernatural meaning, you're kind of already have one foot in in a world in which witchcraft makes sense. Mm -hmm because in a way, witchcraft is a similar sort of thing. Witchcraft is is kind of rooted in the idea that the supernatural and natural worlds can intersect with one another and can influence each other. So that's kind of point number one. They have this providential worldview, which I think is conducive
0: mm-hmm.
1: to a belief in witchcraft. Number two, and this is more of a social dynamic, um, 17th century Puritans in New England were not just being, were not just interested in in being good, devout Christians. They were very interested in developing strong Christian communities. And because of this, at least um, in the early part of the 17th century, there was a pretty strong communitarian ethic in which people were supposed to live in villages and and, uh, communities and kind of keep an eye on each other. Um, And what we do know about witchcraft is that kind of interpersonal face-to-face tensions, the kind that kind of emerged out of everyday village life are very much conducive to creating witch fears. So it just so happens that the kind of the social landscape that the Puritans created in New England was very, very conducive mm-hmm. to developing the sort of social tensions that led to witchcraft. So that's kind of point number two. They, they create a society yeah. in which uh, which fears are, are can thrive. And the final thing um, I would say is the Puritans, um, you know, certainly all Christians focus on this, but the Puritans especially were very much interested in these ideas of sin and salvation and damnation, um, ideas of religious purity. And I think those were also potentially... Um, conducive to witch hunting, especially this idea of diabolical witchcraft. And Mm -hmm. that's something maybe we can get into. But one thing that separates early modern European witchcraft beliefs from witchcraft beliefs, globally speaking, is this idea of diabolism, that witches aren't just witches because they use magic to harm people. Witches are witches because they formed a pact with Satan. That's what they get their powers from. So for the Puritans, who already kind of view the world as this sort of cosmic struggle between God and the devil, good and evil, um, that also very much resonates with this idea of diabolical witchcraft. So again, I think there's a, a range of reasons that um, being a Puritan certainly would uh, put you in a position where you could believe on witchcraft and certainly act upon it. And one thing I show in my book, and not just in New England, but anywhere that Puritans kind of dominate the political landscape – you tend to have higher levels of witch hunting.
0: Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, you, you do show that very well. It's not just New England. It's it's any place that yeah. puritanism exists. And I think that diabolical nature of witchcraft is particularly important too to the gendered assumptions. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit too in terms of how that diabolism kind of works into gender as well.
1: Yeah, um, and that's kind of a very complicated connection. Um, There's a historian by the name of Michael Bailey who's sort of gotten into this. And basically the argument goes is when... This belief in diabolical witchcraft emerges in Europe in the 15th and 16th century. It really changes the gendered context of witchcraft. So, you know, the idea of witchcraft had been around in Europe for a long, long time and had been around in Europe in the Middle Ages. And one thing that a lot of people don't know, in, say, the 14th century and into the 15th century, the majority of people who were accused of witchcraft were men. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, witchcraft was sort of seen as this almost kind of like pseudoscience. Right. It was text-based text-based. Um, it was kind of university-educated uh, sorcerers and, and clerics who were getting involved in witchcraft. And once you're talking about literacy and writing um, and intellectual pursuits, it's sort of coded as masculine. So therefore, witchcraft is a, is a masculine pursuit. These, these necromancers who are out there who are educated men who are trying to manipulate demons and the supernatural world to wield magic. When the diabolical view of witchcraft emerges, emerges in the 15th century and really kind of takes hold in the 16th century, there's kind of a regendering of witchcraft. All of a sudden, um, witches are increasingly seen as servants of Satan. They're not in the driver's seat. These old male necromancers were commanding demons. Now, increasingly, it's the devil who's commanding the witch. And once the witch becomes subordinate, in a way, the witch is increasingly gendered as female. hmm you know, women are subordinate. Women, um, you know, they're not intellectuals. They're not going to be involved in intellectual pursuits. As increasingly, witchcraft is it's almost kind of perceived like a marriage yeah. in which the devil is the dominant partner and the witch is the subordinate partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a maybe the simplest way to put that is the emergence of the idea of diabolical witchcraft helps to sort of regender witchcraft in the early modern period.
2: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense there. And I think um, crystallizes down, as you said, something that's incredibly complicated to maybe a simplistic explanation for for students, especially there. Yeah,
1: there's Michael Bailey who's brought that up. Um, There's another historian, um, a woman who studies witchcraft in Scotland, who's looked at witchcraft and marriage, and I'm totally blanking on her name right now. Uh, It'll come to me at some point. But anyway, so, you know, there are (laughs) scholars out there who have sort of have looked at this um, so that's who I'm kind of drawing upon in, in this discussion.
2: Yeah. And I think too, you know, thinking about the diabolical aspects, how did, how did the Puritans look for that? You know, witchcraft was not only about attitudes and uh, sort of behavior, but what were the signs that Puritans looked right. for as evidence of this diabolical witchcraft nature?
1: Yeah. So and, and here's where we're getting to the whole topic of actual witch hunting versus mm-hmm. sort of the social dynamics of witchcraft. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the, that was sort of like the million dollar question at the time. If witchcraft, believe, you know, if witchcraft exists, how do you identify an actual witch? Right. And, and how do you do this in a courtroom? And one of the easiest ways to do that was to uh, find evidence of witchcraft that you could apply to normal judicial procedures. So, for example, confession was sort of the gold standard. If you could get somebody to confess to being a witch, then that, that did away with the problem of identifying witchcraft. Because witchcraft was seen as sort of an invisible crime. Right. Witches could do things. They could harm people. They could kill people, um, not through physical means, but through these sort of secret, uh, clandestine, magical means. So, you know, if somebody confessed, that solved the issue. The other way, uh, the other preferred method was to find some sort of physical evidence that could sort of uh, translate this invisible world into um, something that could be seen and touched and examined. So um, for example, New England courts um, looked for something that was either variously known as the devil's mark or a witch's teat. And this is, this is a belief that comes out of Europe that is you know, transferred over okay. to the new world. So the idea was, um, is that when you signed your covenant with the devil, that the devil would mark your body in some way. And if you could find this mark and determine this mark, obviously that's an easy way of of distinguishing a, a witch. The other belief was, is that uh, when you sort of formed your pact with Satan, that Satan would s- bestow upon you a familiar spirit mm-hmm. or an animal familiar. And this is very much a, a, a unique piece of English witchcraft lore. And uh, this animal familiar, you know, the proverbial black cat, of the witch was sort of like your uh, evil supernatural sidekick who helped you carry out these malefic acts of magic. And if you could f- if you could find that familiar, obviously that's another piece of physical evidence. But it was also believed that these familiars fed off of the witch, mm-hmm. that they would suck blood and nourishment from the witch through the witch's teeth, which was literally a, a supernatural nipple that the witch would have on their body. And this nipple could move around. And if you could discover that mark, again, that was a way of establishing who was a witch. So the Puritans and not just the Puritans, but early modern Europeans in general spent a lot of time of thinking about how could you take the invisible crime of witchcraft and make it visible? Right. And again, make it, you know, make it something that you would prosecute using normal judicial means.
2: Well, and it's interesting that there's so much emphasis both in New England as well as in England itself, of thinking about that that physicality of witchcraft, considering that this was considered such a a hidden, um, obscured act of of evil, right behind the scenes. But they were always looking for that physical. Evidence, despite the fact that most of the English and New England legal system, you didn't have to have physical evidence usually to be no. you know, found guilty of a particular crime. It was all hearsay. But that's interesting that in this particular crime, they really were looking for that physical evidence.
1: Yeah, I think part of it is sort of wishful thinking. I mean, they <laughs> if that physical evidence doesn't exist, then it's going to be really difficult to prosecute this crime. And I guess the other thing I'd point out is, of course, witchcraft is a, is a capital offense. Yes. Um, so that also kind of upped the ante for evidence. And, and it just to, to be fair to the Puritans, whenever they dealt with capital crimes, they tended to be relatively cautious in their approach to that and, and certainly uh, weren't overly eager to execute people. So, for example, you know, um, adultery was at least officially, punishable by death yeah. in many New England colonies. But at the same time, they were very reticent to impose that penalty, especially if the evidence didn't completely stack up in a way that they were satisfied with. So witchcraft also kind of fits into that that context.
2: Although this was a, a witchcraft craze, I like what you say there, that they aren't um, overly ambitious to execute you know, witches by the thousands in one year. This is a, right. a very carefully calculated claim and trial that's happening alongside that. This isn't the terror of the French Revolution, right? Where you're just no. lining no. witches up to execute them. Although I think that again is some of that sensationalism that you're working against right. here is that this was very calculated
1: in many ways. Yeah. And again, that's kind of like you know, the Salem effect. Mm-hmm. You know, the Salem witch hunt one of the reasons that it's so infamous is that it did sort of run amok. Um, judicial standards did collapse. Um, and also, you know, there are episodes you can find in Europe yes. where, where the same thing happened. But again, um, oftentimes, witch hunting is a lot more pedestrian. It's structured. It's controlled. There are rules of evidence. There's some, you know, there's a real serious attempt to kind of bring some sort of rational process. And yet, yeah, generally speaking, you um, New England courts are not kangaroo courts when it comes to witchcraft cases. And In fact, and, I, and I'm drawing these figures <laughs> out of the out of the depths of my memory, but you know, um, basically, I think in New England, um, if if you kind of exclude Salem from the calculation, your chances of being acquitted are far greater than being convicted in 17th century New England. And and again, there are periods in 17th century New England in which I discuss in the book in which conviction rates really shoot up. But in the main, there's this definitely kind of a a cautious approach to the whole thing. They are looking for evidence. There is a process there.
2: One of the things that you bring up as well as other scholars have brought up is that you know, the year 1700 seems to be a a culminating point for the witchcraft craze. Why is it right around this turn of the century that we start to see fewer and fewer witchcraft episodes and even belief in witchcraft as a reality?
1: Yeah. And I think to begin to answer that, we need to separate witch hunting from witchcraft belief. And I'll I'll start with witch hunting. And in, in New England, The local answer there is, again, going back to Salem, the Salem witchcraft crisis in 1692 does a lot to discredit judicial witch hunting in New England. Soon after Salem is over, there's a growing realization that something had went wrong. And if you look at the statistics of formal legal action taken for witchcraft, it really falls off the cliff after 1692. So that's kind of a local reason you have that discrediting. On On a broader level, um, across the 17th century, especially this, the second half of the 17th century, both in New England and, and in much of Europe, there is a growing process of what Brian Levaque referred to as judicial skepticism. Mm-hmm. And what Levaque meant by that, and I kind of support this notion, is that you know judges, um, they might have believed in witchcraft, but they were increasingly um, concerned, increasingly doubtful, that witchcraft was a crime that you could prove in court using legitimate judicial standards. So increasingly, it's the courts that are putting the brakes on witchcraft convictions and executions. And if you look at Europe, if you look at places like England, if you look at New England, generally speaking, as the 17th century wears on, Courts get more and more cautious. Now, again, Salem kind of breaks the mold. That's why Salem is so famous. So that's kind of the, the second point. You have this growing level of ju- judicial skepticism. There's all kinds of legal reforms going on right. in the early modern period. There's new rules of evidence. There are you know, new efforts to bar the use of torture, et cetera, et cetera. All these things get in the way of convicting people for witchcraft. Um, also, by certainly by the time you get into the 18th century, I would say that the, the intellectual edifice of witchcraft is beginning to collapse um, amongst kind of educated elite circles. And I guess to put this bluntly, you know, you you have the era of the enlightenment, All of a sudden, there's these understandings that there might be sort of natural, understandable phenomenon that might explain what otherwise would be seen as witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So that's going on too. But I guess the final point I'd make, I would separate all of that from witchcraft belief, I think there's a lot of evidence that the belief in witchcraft continues, certainly amongst common people. They don't give that up. What changes is by 1700, if I want to use that roughly as a date, courts are increasingly unwilling to kind of take people's complaints and act upon them in an official judicial matter. So witchcraft belief continues. It's sort of the willingness of the state to translate those beliefs into witch hunting, that's what changes.
2: Yeah, and that, that issue of, I think, the court reforms, the ways in which judicial process is being reformed during this period, and even you know when you look at these trials, which you bring in a lot of great evidence from the trials themselves, which I think um, researchers and students will very much appreciate in, in your chapters, but some of these trials, people are getting up there and doing monologues about things that have happened to them in their lives. Okay. It has nothing to do With witchcraft trials and accusations, because this was really one of the places where they're getting their voices heard in a community. Um, So it, it seems no surprise then that there would need to be a maybe cracking down on the judicial process, letting people come to the courts and make these accusations as they had been before, because it was getting sort of bogged down in that process.
1: Yeah, it's very often you'll have somebody come into court and say, "Oh, ten years ago, you know, this happened to me, and I and I think this is a result of witchcraft." And increasingly, I think the justices recognize that that, that was not sort of actionable testimony. Right. There's nothing you could do with that.
2: Exactly. Well, I think that this is just such a very clearly written, well-organized, and accessible text. And I'm imagining that there are going to be a lot of adoptions of this in upper division and graduate courses, maybe even some high school courses um, on the history of New England and witchcraft, and maybe even the Atlantic world. How do you imagine instructors would use this book in their own courses? While you were writing this and thinking about it, how did you imagine that?
1: Well, first of all, I I hope you're right (laughs) about the adoptions. Yeah, and again, the the whole genesis of this book was my desire to come up with a text that would be more useful in class. And so, you know, there's a a bunch of things that I I did when writing this book to make it more useful. So, for example, the chapters in many ways are relatively Mm self-contained. So you could assign one chapter, but maybe not necessarily assign another one. Maybe you're using a different text or you want to lecture on that issue. And I think also you could potentially kind of uh, mix up the chapters in a different order yeah. if you wanted to. So that was one kind of design feature of the book. And again, I, you know, the, the lack of jargon, uh, the accessibility of it, that's something else that uh, I, I really uh, worked on in it. But I guess, you know, um, two strategies that I would think of when, when using this book, and, and the reason I think of these is, is quite a, what I try to do in my own classes, is I think one of the best ways for students to really engage with the history of witchcraft and witch hunting is by having them read primary documents, mm-hmm. having them get in there and really engage with the, the evidence. Um, unfortunately, as we all, as historians all know, primary documents are not very user-friendly. Right. You know, they're not meant to be understood by college students or, or, you know, the general public in the 21st century. So one thing that um, I would hope my book would be able to do is I could imagine in a class um, maybe reading a chapter from my book and then the instructor would assign a small number of primary documents and then have the students kind of interrogate those primary documents in light of what. You know what information they gathered from my chapter so you know in the chapter i you know, the second chapter i really address like what is witchcraft you know how did new englanders think about witchcraft and understand witchcraft after reading that chapter then you can kind of go into these primary documents to see how those primary documents kind of reflect those uh those concepts yeah. so that's one way i think uh, this book would provide a good sort of context to kind of give students the kind of intellectual background that they need to really understand and grapple with primary documents. You know, one thing I do in the book is simply lay out the judicial process. You know, what was it like? What were the steps? Um, And that also helps students understand those documents. If you don't know what an indictment is, if you don't know what a presentment is, if you don't know what it means uh, when the grand jury presents the finding of True Bill, it's going to make it difficult to understand those documents. So, you know, so I think my book will provide good context there. The other thing, I think my book um, can also function well on, I guess, uh, what I call a historiographic level. Mm-hmm. So I, in fact, this is what I do in my undergraduate research seminar. I, I like to assign John Demos's book, Entertaining Satan. I, I assign Carol Carlson's book, Devil in the Shape of a Woman. And I've also been using my text. And, um, myself and and demos and carlson tend to cover uh, a lot of similar ground but i think it's interesting for students to see how those ideas kind of evolve and build upon one another yeah. so you know what does demos say about the profile of which suspects? What does Carlson have to say? You know, what does Paul Moyer have to say about that? How do these ideas intersect with each other? Why does this historian come up with this explanation and this historian comes up with this explanation? And I think that's also very useful um, to both undergraduates and graduate students to kind of see how history sort of functions in that way, how how history um, on some occasions builds upon itself. Yeah. Or on other occasions, kind of challenges previous explanations. So that's another thing that I I think um, I could envision using using my book for. That would
2: work so well in a in a methods course, right? Where you're trying to explain right. to students the historiography of a particular field and a particular methodology and a particular set of sources. I'm just thinking I I have to teach my my methods right. course in the spring, and I'm like, yeah. oh, that's a great idea, especially with witchcraft, which will definitely garner interest among the students
1: well yeah that's how this all started I, I think like maybe uh, 15 years ago or, or so I had the teacher research methods class
2: mm-hmm.
1: and each faculty member comes up with a topic and I think well what's a good topic oh a good topic is Salem oh yeah because all the documents are online the Salem Trans- transcription project and there's this kind of body of literature and then that course on Salem kind of shifted over to a, a broader focus on on witch hunting in 17th century New England but yeah you have this you know body of scholarship that students can sort of master, and then you kind of teach them uh, how to interrogate and read secondary historical sources, and also how to interrogate and read primary sources. And that's where witchcraft is such a great learning tool yeah. because the primary sources are are kind of fascinating.
2: Yeah, and they're and they're you know, plentiful what,
1: too. Yes, yeah. And one of the one of the ones I I, I start them out with is um, the testimony from Salem. This guy uh, John Launder or John Lauder, depending on on how his name is spelled. And at one point, he, he, he sees this creature, which is an animal familiar, but it has the, I think he said, it has the head of a monkey and the body of a chicken. You know, where else <laughs> do you encounter that sort of material? And then he asks you, well, so, how do you explain that? Right. You know, what are the possible explanations for his testimony? Is he a lying um, is he, you know, <laughs> is he mentally ill, um, or is there some other possible, possible explanation? And that's where you can get into really, uh, interesting discussions with students. Yeah. But not only about kind of how history works, but these sort of kind of larger kind of metaphysical sort of issues.
2: Yeah. That's so interesting. So
1: there's my plug for witchcraft is a, is a wonderful, uh, topic to kind of look at the past.
2: That's an excellent plug. I hope many people will take you up on that, on that suggestion. Yeah. What, what are you working on now, Paul?
1: Immediately on, on the immediate horizon is I have some articles coming out on, on witchcraft and witch hunting in, in 17th century New England, which kind of spin off of my book. One thing I, I briefly bring up in the book are husband and wife witches, which seems to be kind of a, um, a witch profile sort of unique or at least more pronounced in New England. And I'm, I'm writing an article on that entitled Diabolical Duos, which is going to kind of look at that in a lot more a lot more depth the other thing i'm doing in the, in the larger project which is completely different from witchcraft and in fact uh, as a scholar i like to kind of do diverse topics i don't like this kind of stick with the same field too long although i, I imagine I'll, I'll be teaching witchcraft f- forever because it's just such a great issue to teach but i'm also working on a book that right now the title is is the es- execution of iris Stout. And it's actually a story that takes place in Antebellum, Rochester, which is right down the road from me. And it's this case of this guy, Ira Stout, who murders his sister's husband at the High Falls in Rochester, this dramatic site. And uh, I, I wanna tell this story as sort of a micro history as a way of looking at places like Rochester during the era of industrialization. I mean, Rochester, this kind of boom town that grows during the earlier Industrial Revolution. Also, um, it's a, a way of exploring the early social justice movement in America. Frederick Douglass is in Rochester. He gets involved in the case. Susan B. Anthony's in Rochester. She gets involved in the case as an anti-capital punishment campaign. So there's all these different angles um, that I wanna look at um, by using the, the execution of Iris Stout as, as the, central, the central spoke, I guess of the story.
2: That sounds like yeah. a very interesting...
1: I like, I like microhistory history um, as a historical approach, and maybe that's another reason that I, I like witchcraft so much because you get these little witchcraft cases that can, you mm-hmm. know, if you, if you put them in context, they can reveal a lot more about the culture and the society. Something that seems... It would seem almost counterintuitive that something so bizarre and odd could tell you something about the larger society. You know, witchcraft seems like more of an anomaly than anything else but I think if you if you do it right you can get a lot of insights into the culture.
2: Well thank you so much for joining me today to talk about detestable and wicked arts New England and witchcraft in the early modern Atlantic world. I appreciate it this was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah you're welcome might a blast
2: And thank you to Cornell University Press for a review copy of detestable and wicked arts. To purchase your own copy please visit Cornell University Press. I'll see you next time on New Books in History, a channel of New
0: Books Network.